This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, Dr. Elizabeth Emery. Thank you so much for joining me today to discuss your exciting new book, Reframing Japonisma, Women and the Asian Art Market in 19th Century France, 1853 to 1914. This is a book recently published by Bloomsbury, and I'd like to... um, briefly introduce us to our listeners, and then we'll dive right in. I'm so excited to get to the meat of the material. Um, I am Erin Duncan O'Neill, an assistant professor of 19th century European art history at the University of Oklahoma. And Elizabeth Emery um, is a professor of world languages and cultures, specializing in 19th century French literature and culture studies. And this includes, um, this is just a snapshot, um, the medieval revival in 19th century France, writers' house museums, journalism and celebrity, and uh, the subject of our discussion today, Japonisme, commerce, and the collecting uh, practices of women in 19th century, the 19th century art world. Um, so I wonder before we dive into the material of the book, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself. So where you were born, where you went to school, any influential mentors, how you became interested in French language and culture and literature. Great. Thank you so much, Erin, and, and thank you for that warm welcome. It's, it's really a pleasure to be on this, this program uh, among so many other fantastic books. So I was, uh, in terms of origins, I was born in Indiana, born and raised in Indiana, and went east for school to Wellesley College in Massachusetts for undergraduate studies and then New York University for graduate school with a couple of uh, stays teaching English in, in France. Um, I, in terms of mentors, I worked with colleagues at the Institute of Fine Arts with uh, Timmy Witz and Nancy Regalado in the Medieval Studies program at NYU. And how I got interested in French culture, I, I think, you know, it's interesting that nobody asks about origins, but I think it was actually through Indiana and not the New York trajectory. Uh, I was part of a program sponsored by Indiana University for high school students. And it was this remarkable summer program to go to Brittany and study in an immersion experience with excursions and and just the discovery of French history and culture. And so I think for, for me, I'd always been an avid reader and I knew European history and, and literature really well. But to actually be sur place, like you're in the place with the volume of the 
of, of getting a sense of, of history as real and embedded and anchored in people and, and materiality rather than just the kind of fact sheets that the basketball coach history teacher gave us to memorize as, you know, history class. So I hadn't been very interested in history, but this living it, going to the cemeteries in, on D-Day beaches, for example, and just seeing the, those long football fields, I mean, almost of, of, of crosses gave a human component to history that wasn't there. And then um, as part of that Normandy trip, we were housed, we were hosted by a family that had actually experienced D-Day. And so my host, Juliette, was 16. I was 16 at the time. And she told us the story of how she was to have been married on D-Day. She lived in Sainte-Marie-Glise, which was one of those first villages. It was, I think, the first village, actually, liberated by the American paratroopers. And they accidentally bombarded her house, right? So her wedding dress went up in flames and all of her materials. But then the soldiers were so sorry that they, they found the couple things for their wedding and helped them get married. So that I think is really this idea of, of, of story, of who tells the story, the fact that everything I knew about the D-Day came from young American soldiers with their weapons invading, had all of these other elements that involved social life and wedding dresses and shoes mm. and and the fact that she wanted her story to be told. So she she said we were not the first group that had stayed with her every year. Every year since like the 1950s, I think she had been welcoming students and she would press into our hands this uh, manuscript of her story mm. so that we would keep it. And I have it in a photo album. Uh, but this this real interest in having her story told and remembered as uh, not an antidote, but as a, as a, as a complement to official history. So anyway, I think I think that was a real formative experience is spending time with people who had experienced momentous occasions in world history and getting a sense for history not just as flat, but as this really rich. Uh, social and cultural phenomenon. I love that because uh, going abroad at the time, the formative time that you did, it sounds like you get a sense not only of the sort of broader stretch of history than, you know, us Americans often have access to in terms of the material world around us, um, but also the the recentness of such, you know, incredibly important historical events. Um, so just... I, I love that. And I also love that um, there are some sort of rhymes or similarities um, between that experience. I can see how that influenced at least your current work, you know, about sort of women um, whose very powerful stories have been made invisible and they're sort of pressing papers into people's hands and sort of trying to assert themselves on the historical record, you know, uh, and, and often don't even make it <laughs> with their own sort of advocating for, for their self and their stories. Um, do you, are you sort of coming back to this topic of, you know, women's stories and women's histories, or is that, did that inform your work in graduate school or um, what did you work on in your graduate program? Uh, yeah, these are, no, these are great, 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 great questions. And it's funny because you don't, it, you don't actually, ref sometimes you don't reflect on the way that your experiences, you think about it chronologically rather than in these sort of leaps of time going back and forth from topics. And I think you're absolutely right that this particular book is pulling 
very much from those kinds of recoveries of, of, of women's voices that I was interested in as a teenager mm-hmm. uh, and were not part of my doctoral work, but have always interested me as a reader. Um, and so just to give you an example of the sort of the pressing paper into somebody's hands, one of the figures I talk about a lot in the book is Clémence Denry. Uh, she's kind of the central figure in the book. She left a museum. So she wanted to press her story so firmly into history that she created a museum. She endowed it. She provided half a million francs to keep it running for per- in perpetuity. And yet, 10 years after her death, she was completely erased. And to this day, people say it was her husband's work. Um, so just to answer that part of the question, that there, there, there was this n- confusion about what I could see in the historical record and this, this desire to bring back women who were influential in the 1840s and 50s mm-hmm. um, and who became erased in some ways. The, what my graduate work was actually much more, it was, it was similar in, in the focus on material culture. And I worked in medievalism studies. So the reception of Gothic cathedrals in, mm-hmm. in, um, in literature, literature and art history. So less voice, more material, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but but I think still working in these same issues of, of cultural transmission and conservation and who gets to tell what story and how do they tell that story? Absolutely. Well, well, since you um, are bringing in one of the you know central figures of this book, um, a, a woman who really enlivens the story of the understudied role of women um, in the production and collection and sale of Japanese and, and Asian art more broadly in. 19th century France. Do you want to give a broad outline of the book? Um, did I have more questions um, <laughs> about her, um, but do you want to just give a broad outline and then we can dive in? Sure. Yes, I should probably do that instead of just like, plunging into the key characters. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's helpful for <laughs> listeners to know what the book is about. <laughs> um, so the, the book is called Reframing Japanese. And the idea is to Take, so the concept of Japanese was a 19th century phenomenon. The, the word itself was coined in 1872 as a way of talking about this huge interest for Japanese imports coming in after the opening of Japan to the West. And initially, it was a fairly broad term just to talk about the excitement, but it very quickly was narrowed down into a question of elites, of people with access to publications and scholarship. And so the idea of of reframing Japonisme is on the one hand to look at the way that this concept became restricted. So the frame that was originally fairly large kind of shrank as people wanted to put a claim on having founded it, right? So there's this idea of, of how a concept becomes exclusionary. And then the second part was to recover all of these women who, in many respects, were collecting, were, were, were teaching. They're constantly referred to as teachers. So that the teachers of the figures who later claim to have invented or discovered um, Japanese art. So I guess that was a little messy, but <laughs> on the, 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 there's the framework and then there are the, the recovered stories. Well, and I found uh, this completely expanded my mind um, on the subject um, of Japanese. I mean, I'm an art historian and 
you know, in my graduate work, I came across these figures and read, you know, some of these magazines um, as primary source materials. And I sort of thought, oh, this is, you know, doing the historical work. And then the the work that you recover sort of predating um, uh, the work of the Goncourt brothers and uh, Siegfried Bing, I mean, y- you show who their teachers were. Um, including this incredible group of women and and who they sort of excluded as they came to write the narrative. So, so this, this book traces not just these important women figures um, in 19th century France, but also the historiography of their disappearance, right? The, the sort of calculated um, disappearance and replacement with this, you know, u- the utopian brotherhoods. I love how you put that um, of these sort of bachelor men, these, these competent men, as you say, very early on. Um, were there helpful models for you as you structured this intervention? Um, or what made you sort of discover that um, Japonisma needed to, to be interrogated further, that its sort of origin story need, needed to be interrogated further? Yeah, the, uh, you know, more, more great questions. So for the, let's see, for, in terms of models, there, there are Million, I mean, millions. I'm, I'm basically this is the the idea of a disappearance and the 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 the, out, the writing out of women is um, ha, was the foundations were laid by a wonderful generation of feminist uh, historians and critics. So John Joan Scott, Griselda Pollock, Linda Nochlin, among uh, among many others, Tamar Garb, and so what. So you asked about Japonisme as a concept, and that I think is where this is is new because Japonisme is because it is a new phrase, a new exp- I mean, sorry, no, a new expression. This is where you can actually follow. You can trace very carefully through documents and through writing as it narrows and doing this kind of historiography you're talking about. The in terms of. Um, Figures. So Clémence Denry, who created this museum, ended up being, she was actually the beginning of my project. And initially, mm-hmm. I wanted just to work on her. But then I realized that the more I looked, there were all these women that kept coming out of the, the woodwork, so to speak. And it was, it seemed more important, at least for this project, to tell the story of the larger context in mm-hmm. which she was somebody who is well-documented and to use her story as a kind of a, a micro-history that has a lot of implications for other figures that we can't so easily trace. Absolutely. And and how did you find her? <laughs> through, the, through this museum, which exists today, uh, and your interest in museums, or how did you find Clémence? <laughs> I think actually I first read about her when I was a grad student. There was, you know, one of the books that talks about all of the the hidden corners of Paris. And I remember reading about this museum that had you know, it, was, it was hidden, it was like a forgotten museum. I thought, oh, how interesting. And I thought, how how is it possible that somebody could collect nine thousand small objects representing mythological creatures from East Asia? and never go there. How could she do this in Paris? And so this is before I knew more about the art market. And I thought, I'll have to visit that museum someday. So that was kind of the the puzzle is this woman who 
allegedly founds a museum, but then there are all these other sources saying, well, she didn't. It was the work of her husband, or it was the work of Georges Clemenceau, it was the work of... So it was kind of one of those conundrums that sits in the back of your head and, and you think about... Uh, so in terms of finding her... So that was... She was there as this puzzle to solve. Um, when I was at the Archive Nationale, I was able to actually recover massive folders of documentation related to the foundation of the museum. Mm. And interestingly, it was very, very hard to gain access to the actual museum archives. It took me probably about five years of going back to the Musée Guimet, where they're located every year, you know, sometimes twice a year, and saying, so, could I look at these? <laughs> okay, well, if that's, you know, I'll look at other things. I, you know, I need to look at these things. And so eventually, I'm not sure what changed, if it was a policy change, if it was a personnel change, but they said, well, we can bring out these, these boxes. Um, and so, so that was, it was wonderful, because once I got access to that, you, you have the whole, the whole picture kind of emerges from these ledgers and notebooks and correspondence. Well, the your archival work and the sort of sense of discovery, um, you can get a sense of that in your footnotes. You know, you you do so much work on her her notebooks where she's tracing um, the origin of the objects. You know, where she purchased them, if at auction, the materials. Um, she was really meticulous, and and it not only gives you information about the objects, but establishes her as the the curator right the the collector the thinker um do you and we should reiterate i i suppose for listeners that her collecting practice began in the 1840s can you talk about how unusual that that is or this is really stunning facts Yes. So, so I'm so glad that the sense of adventure and excitement comes out because it, truly I could have spent, you know, 20 years <laughs> excavating. But um, a lot of this research was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And I did feel kind of responsible that I needed to get the, the work out so that they, you know, they, they trusted in me that I would trust in them. Um, and so that digging could have gone on forever, forever. But the so going back to the 1840s, it's interesting to use the word unusual because that that comes up a lot in terms of women um, print collecting. It's unusual for women. Um, being a collector in general is unusual for French women, and I think in fact it wasn't at all unusual. I think women have always collected; they've just not been given credit for it, and so. What she says, and it's in, in newspaper interviews of the time, is that she was an unusual woman. She didn't want to be like other people. And instead of girls who used their, their money to buy dresses, when they were given money for dresses, she would go out and buy these little objects because she loved them and they were interesting and unique and unusual. And that, that's how, those, how collections start, right? As you start with a very small something and progressively people give you gifts where you augment them until suddenly you have 200. So by 1861, she actually had 200 of these small mythological objects from Japan, China, Korea. And they actually, uh, Duo, the auction house had an exhibit of her 200 objects, which they, they praised and said they were rare, they were fascinating and interesting and valuable. 
1861. So what's what's unusual really is the timing. This is before 1860s is when Japanese objects first start being imported. So she's collecting very old objects that have been around since the the Ancien Régime or being brought in by by travelers. And, and you know, 30 years before, again, Japonisma is, you know, coined as a term <laughs> before the language exists um, to sort of codify this practice as an elite aesthetic practice. Um, I have a, a thousand questions. Um, you mentioned sort of older objects. And one thing I was interested in is um, you you say that there might be some credit we can give to um, her mother uh, as evidenced by a 16th century um, lacquer trunk um, in Clemence's collection. Do you have a sense that I know you're, you know, you you've bridged medievalism in the 19th century, but do you have a sense that there are sort of parallel stories um, and illusions of women of generations preceding um the, the sort of generation you uh, dive so deeply into um, about women's collecting practices and especially of Asian objects in France. Yes, absolutely. I think that, I think there are, again, I think women have always a collected women who have the, the means mm-hmm. to collect, right. That's, and to collect objects that have been considered valuable um, so Phyllis Floyd and Deborah Jensen have both kind of excavated the prehistory of Japanese objects circulating in France to show that there's also a kind of a story of Japan opens to the West and suddenly Japanese objects have never existed in France before, but it, it neglects that, that medieval Renaissance uh, history of, of trade and travel and the circulation of objects through Europe. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, uh, Marie Antoinette, for example, had a collection of Japanese lacquer boxes. So there, there were, for those who are interested in collecting them, there were objects in circulation, and especially after the revolution, where so many, so many materials were thrown back onto the market and were could be acquired, especially if they weren't recognized as a collectible item mm-hmm. right, for, for fairly little money. Well, and I found your arguments about the dismissal of these kinds of objects in the history of art um, so compelling. You know, we can paint these objects or, you know, scholars have painted these objects with brushes of commercialism and foreignness and the feminine, even the erotic, um, both for the decorative arts and Asian artworks. Um, and this really explains your, your book really explains, you know, why museums and art history were sort of so late to taking these sort of objects seriously. Um, do you do you have any thoughts about, um, or can you sort of explain this this these kinds of institutional dismissals of decorative art objects um, from Asia, um, and and is are we still repeating you know some of these mistakes, ignoring the decorative world? Ooh, that is yes, that is a hot question. <laughs> uh, the so in the book, I, I try to think through the ways that terminology has in fact gendered objects uh, so that we do get to a point where there are still a lot of issues with different kinds of art. So textiles, for example, or flower painting, uh, 
um, in the 19th century in particular, right, where, where women painters could not yet be accepted to uh, l'école des Beaux-Arts, you have a very much, it's, it's much more than it is today. So if we stay in the 19th century, I think that's very clear that certain kinds of, uh, s- certain forms are for certain people. Um, but going back to the idea of, of, of gendering terminology, um, we talked a little bit about the Ancien Régime and Marie-Antoinette and Madame de Pompadour, who collected chinoiserie, which leads down into Rococo and, and, and a kind of art that was seen as feminine. So when the Goncourt brothers, for example, are writing their histories of 18th century courtesans and their collections, they talk about how feminine you know, they are inscribing themselves into this, this tradition and, and then making it their own. But there is definitely a, a bias at this time toward Asian objects as women's collectibles in particular, um, particularly small decorative objects, right? Um, what happens is as Japanese, specifically Japanese uh, objects come on the market, the term chinoiserie, which is used up until, it's used throughout the 19th century as a kind of a catch-all to talk about objects from the Far East. And there's no, it's kind of like today where in the United States people say, oh, Asian, mm-hmm. you know, what does that mean? So chinoiserie was kind of like one of those catch-all terms. What ends up happening is, is specifically Japanese becomes, has a higher status in the 1870s. They developed the term japoneserie or japonerie, which didn't exist previously. So it's actually really important when we look at the terms that are used in the 19th century, not to assume that when they say chinoiserie, they mean it's from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that ends up giving you, giving, giving those people a, a gendered terminology. So when women collect Japanese objects at chinoiserie and ties them back and puts them in that 18th century courtesan tradition, Whereas when men collect japoneserie, oh, well, they're from Japan and they're divorced from that previous tradition. And so, then you get the masculine word, Japonisme, you know. The, exactly. <laughs> then it becomes exactly. um, even more sort of obvious. Um, yeah, your your linguistic history was so fascinating in this world too. Um, and, and the made urgent that that pressing need for the invention of this term, right, to codify this practice as male. Um, it was just fascinating. Um, and, and I was also, I was so interested again, as an art historian, you know, who studies this stuff, I was so interested. I was very persuaded about your argument about prints coming so late to this world, to this sort of, um, aesthetic sphere. Um, and, and, you know, being more you know two dimensional and also collected by these sort of uh, male collectors, but how late that was, and how we ignore so many of these small the small decorative objects, these mythological figures, um, to privilege prints, right? A lot of um, what you write about um, um, in Denerie's collection are these monsters, these chimeras, these uh, mythological figures. Um, She collected thousands of these, as you said, these little three-dimensional sculptures, and there's great images in the book. Um, So I'm interested in these 
these figures and why, you know, it's, it's hard to say. She gives a sort of funny answer for when she's asked about why she's interested in this. But I was wondering if you have more personal thoughts about what appealed to her. Uh, is it sort of formal? Did she, are these the sort of hybridity of figures? Why did she love them so much? Yes, thank you. Great, great question. The so the decorative so the decorative objects are actually collected by everybody. So even people who are print collectors are not not collecting small decorative items and passing them around at dinners and admiring them. Now, what's really interesting with Clémence Denry is that she talks in in uh, newspaper interviews about her love for these. And your, I think your, your, your question about the 3D, there's a real haptic attraction. She, she talks about caressing them and admiring the, the, the touch, the way they've been worked, what they, how the artist has chosen to represent them. So there's a, a, a huge aesthetic appeal. These aren't, you know, it's, a lot of people have said, oh, it's just an exotic display of objects. It's, it's her vision of what you know the 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 far east is and in fact that discounts absolutely the care with which she thinks about each individual object she considered them her children she didn't have children and so her these objects she would move them around her house she would put different color combinations together to try to show see what by putting diff- either variations on a theme um, putting different materials together the different colors, how that would make them stand out. She would experiment with display and lighting. Um, but I think it was really this, this haptic, it's the touch of these tiny objects. And I think if anybody who's ever passed around a netsuke, they're, they're soft, you know, if they're in wood, in boxwood. So one of the, uh, the particularities of Clemence Denali's collection is she really, she collected wooden netsuke, which other people didn't they preferred ivory or other um, other materials, and so her, for, for her the wood was quite interesting to look at. The, you know, think about the carving, um, and so she was not alone. This was they would have parties. It, it, we, we think about art as sort of reified, and I think this comes back to your question about the decorative arts, right? When it's reified in a vitrine in a display case with a label and nobody touches it, then it becomes art. Whereas if it's something that you go to a salon, a salon at somebody's living room, and you're passing around, you're, you're opening the vitrine and you fish them out. Goncourt talks about going to Louise Caron d'Anvers' house and fishing out the netsuke from her vitrine and sort of passing them around at the, um, the one of the legends of the, the Japonisme movement is the dinners where the the group of men would go out to dinner and, and show their new purchases and admire them. And uh, Willis Silverman has recently edited Henri Vever, the jeweler, uh, his, his journals from 1898, 1898. And he describes these in incredible vivid detail. And so he'll say, you know, um, he'll say, Bing brought this, uh, Mijon brought this. And you see that they're, first of all, they're not all Japanese objects. They're, they're handing around Byzantine objects. They're medieval objects. There are, are objects from Persia. But the commonality is touching, you know, touching, holding up to the light in a way that, and admiring these, these, them from an aesthetic perspective that isn't in a display case. Um, so I, I got away from Clémence Denery, but I think, so um, you did ask about the question about why monsters and why mm-hmm. mythological creatures. And I think... 
Um, I probably didn't say this in the book, but I do think that what it, it was partially because she's a young girl. She doesn't have a lot of money. She's interested in these things that nobody else is. So she can buy them for very little money at the time. And so her funds allow her to start buying them. And she's intrigued by these these aesthetic forms. How do you sculpt a dragon in boxwood? And um, so that kind of, you know, the 3D, I think, is super important. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I, I, I love to hear you talk about that. And also, you know, I loved the, the photographs in your book about these dining rooms, you know, these spaces of exchange. And you get you do get the sense that this was personal. This was haptic. This was touch. Um, I, I'm wondering, and I know they weren't all sort of hybrid creatures, um, but were there any intersections with the sort of budding symbolist movement or, you know, literature that was happening at the time about sort of monsters or fantastical figures, any sort of parallels that you sort of intuit? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll backtrack mm-hmm. to the living rooms again. Um, just to say that we, f- I think we forget that museums haven't always had wings of Asian art. And so in the period I talk about in the book, there wasn't yet the, the, the Musée Guimet, the National Museum of Asian Arts, didn't open until 1889. So you don't have a space, a display space for these. Going into somebody's living room is essentially where you go to see these objects as if you know, in lieu of a, a museum. Uh, and then that kind of pulls into your question about symbolism. So Edmond and Jules de Goncourt are really good examples of this because they are known to, their writing on monsters is known to have influenced symbolist writers. So their are great books, um, Pamela Genova, Jan Hokanson, trace these relationships between Goncourt, the symbolists, uh, kind of monstrous thinking. But I'll backtrack. So where did the Goncourt learn about monsters? Hmm. Turns out they were very good friends with Clémence Denry, who had been collecting since the 1840s. Uh, Jules de Goncourt ended up going, and this is, a, this is one of the only well-known stories about Clémence Denry, is that in 1859, he was invited over to her house in the middle of the night well, she made the after a party. She invited him to come up and see her monsters, and um, he said, "Ho oh, ho, her monsters!" Right? <laughs> um, when he showed up later on, on another day, she said, "Well, you can't come now. I have to. I have to. Like, I have to organize them. I have to dust them." She says, but clearly, she wants to show them off to somebody who ha- who is an interest in collecting, and it's before the Goncourt have a Japanese art collection, so. He comes to her house thinking, "Oh, this is you know, this is a tr- this is a love affair. This will be wonderful." And he, she opens the door. And he's like, "Oh, this is the most incredible living room I've ever seen." You know, she's curated her collection. She's got the lighting just right. She has red walls. She's got everything in um, on um, on display cases. I mean, on um, 
shelves and display cases. And he is flabbergasted. So what does he do? He sits down and she brings him objects to touch. Right? So it, it's a real discovery for him. So later, he and his brother go to a new display when she moves apartments, which they call her, her Chinese museum, because it's all these objects are mixed creatures. They, the initial description of her apartment ends up being rewritten into texts that are published about specifically Japanese monsters. She becomes removed from the story entirely. But it's my contention that it was thanks to her collection that they saw all of these monsters and decided that this was the monstrous imagination of Japan is thanks to her. So, Well, you recovered this incredible moment of teaching, right? This, this influential piece, this sort of keystone um, indebted to a woman, you know, this very smart, aesthetically savvy, you know, woman collector. Um, and we can we'll come back to um, to her, but moving on to chapter two and another teacher, um, and this is one of my favorite, you know, figures um, in the book. Um, you tell the story, and you'll tell it better um, in the early art market of Madame Dessois and her uh, role as this one of the first importers of Japanese goods in France. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, she had language capabilities. Her shop was frequented by all sorts of artists and writers. Um, so you unearthed this incredibly influential figure. Um, again, another teacher of these sort of men who get the credit. Um, so how did you find her? <laughs> the shopkeeper, right? Yes. So it, so it's interesting. So I love, I love the fact that you're emphasizing the teaching, right? And again, we talk about gendering and, and women's roles and, right, the teacher is often discounted because, because the teacher is, <laughs> because the teacher finds the information, which is then discovered by the pupils who go on to be famous. Um, anyway, the, uh, so Madame de Soie, so I didn't discover her. She is, interestingly, she is a constant. She is the one of the only people in the story of Japonisme who is always there, but always unknown. So every story about the origins of Japonisme go back to her shop on the Rue de Rivoli. Um, but she, she has no identity. She's Madame de Soie. She has no first name. She has no story. Uh, the, the, the contents of her shop are confused with several, many, many of the articles about her talk about the fact that it was a Chinese shop or it was called a different name or it was someplace else. Uh, so it was a little bit of an, um, of an obsession. I was absolutely obsessed by, okay, if I'm writing this book, I have to find out who she was. It's not possible for me not to know who Madame de Soie was. Uh, and, and it, so it ended up being a whole lot of detective work just for very for very little information but it was worth it because it it helps understand why there's no monsieur de soie what what the role was between the two uh, and it also brings up a lot of questions about how do we as as historians and cultural historians you know, how do you find women mm-hmm. from the 19th century and the limitations of of civil records that are based on maiden names when you don't know the maiden name or you don't know the first name. So anyway, that, so I, so I found her by trying to triangulate knowing that there were mentions of her husband stopped shortly around the Franco-Prussian war. And I thought, well, maybe he died in action. You know, what happened? When did she become a veuve? 
So I looked through all of the um, in the uh, Les Archives de Paris in the, the 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 Paris City Archives. The I went through all the records from the where the store was organized to try to figure out if I could find his death certificate, mm. and that was the key. So once you have the death certificate, then you have the name of the wife, and then you have her maiden name, and then you can start tracing back through that. And I had several friends in France who were extremely helpful in giving me ideas. Well, what if you looked at this departmental archive or what if we looked at this and who went to cemeteries? And so it was a real collaborative effort, but definitely obsessive. <laughs> uh, I mean, it really it ended up, I was looking in, her husband ended up being from Brussels, right? So there are civil records in Brussels. There were, they were, um, living outside of Paris in a maritime town. They, so there were all kinds of different, I mean, it, it must've involved probably 30 separate sets of uh, departmental archives, <laughs> most of which luckily, many of which are now digitized. Well, um, and so genealogical societies have really helped make this kind of work possible. I was going to ask you about, you know, that part of the process. Do you enjoy time in the archives? Uh, was a lot of this sort of, you know, physical time in these spaces, you know, requesting documents? If, if the listeners haven't spent time in French archives, it's it's Byzantine. <laughs> um, it's complex. Um, were there any sort of research angles or photo permissions that were particularly challenging? Was this your biggest challenge or, you know, was this your biggest discovery or were there more exciting moments in the archival process for you? Uh, this, I think, was my biggest discovery because it, we we just didn't know. We knew she was important, but it wasn't, we didn't know who she was. Mm -hmm. And so we still don't know a lot about their time in Japan. But what we do know is that she was born in rural northern France, um, somehow got to probably China, right? And then through China, exposure to, exposure, exposure to Japan and, and Japanese. Um, she and her husband came back. Um, it's established that they were in the Far East and allegedly in Japan, although in 1862, that's really early. So that, that piece I'm still working on. The, but they set up their shop on the Rue de Rivoli, and were all of a sudden, they were massively, massively popular because they specialized in Japanese goods, not in Chinese goods or in, in kind of mixed. So there were a lot of curiosity shops. And that was... So the discovery for her was fantastic because then I had... I knew the contents of the shop. I knew I had their marriage contract. So I knew how much money they had, what they brought to the contract. When she got remarried, she was an incredibly successful businesswoman. And she had turned a failing business with her husband around into this hugely profit profitable venture. Um, I was able to trace her, meet her descendants, who sadly have lost her story. Um, which was really sad. I was hoping that maybe they would have you know, secret documents and photos. Maybe they'll turn up. Uh, but, but so that, no, I love, you can tell from this, I'm very enthusiastic. <laughs> I love the archival work. I could have spent you know, decades um, digging up more information. And, and I'll keep working because I really want to recover. If any of the listeners happen to know of pockets of of um, of port cities, I think, especially in the period probably from 1858 to 1862, I would be very, very excited for Leeds. Mm. Um, 
But the, yes, so great obsession, the archives. But this was probably, I think Madame de Soif being able to find her and put a name that she's not just this, Goncourt describes her as a kind of pudgy idol who sits in her shop laughing as if she were just an object, like all of the objects in, 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 in paintings of, of exotic Japanese goods. And, um, but she, you know, she was a teacher. She was the one who interpreted, who told them what these objects meant, um, who brought them in with her husband before his death. You know, they were directly importing. So. Right. And one, another dynamic I appreciated about this book is sort of every time a question emerged for me as a reader about the intersections with this invisibility and French the legal status of women, you answered it. Um, so could you just for, for an uninitiated, you know, listener, what was the status, uh, the legal status for women in France at this period? And, and how did that pose a challenge to you in a, in a way that's different, right, than histories of America and Russia and Britain, as you say? Thank you. I'm, well, first of all, I'm just, I'm so gratified that 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 I was able to do that, um, and that it, that it came across because I was trying to do that. I, I do think that the French context is particularly challenging, uh, and it's it's one of the reasons why there's so many wonderful books on American and British collectors, and and not as many in the French context. So the the kind of the short story is that the Napoleonic Code of 1804 took away all of the progress that had been made during the French Revolution and made women essentially minor children of their, I mean, um, the dependents of their husbands or fathers. And so that what that impacted is their ability to have money and own property and dispose of property. So if they had marriage contracts, if they had what was called a communauté des biens or it's sort of um, a communal property, it all belonged to the husband. There was no it wasn't really communal <laughs> uh, for the woman. And so when, if, say, a woman like Clémence Dannery had a collection and she died, it was her husband's collection. And that's essentially what happened in the story of the Musée Dannery. She had been extremely careful when they were married to protect her collection within the contract. And she was very careful to you know, again, pushing that paper into somebody's hand to make sure her record was was established. She worked with the government to draw up wills so that they would protect the the collection, even if she predeceased her husband, which was unexpected. But she still took that eventuality into consideration. Mm-hmm. If somebody was married with a um, a contract that speci- could could be married with a contract that specified what belonged to them, and especially for um, for people who owned businesses, women who worked in businesses had a special dispensation. And so we can actually, interestingly, well, it's easier to follow the trajectory of women who worked in businesses and who owned businesses and inherited businesses than bourgeois women. Um, there's a really wonderful book by Beatrice Craig that studies the women of Lille and how marriage contracts allow us to look very closely at how those businesses operated. Well, and and this precarious status of women um, led to, I mean, despite um, Clemence's, you know, 
very uh, savvy, you know, um, strategic construction of her will, it led to this big legal melodrama, which is not only sort of a juicy story in the book that I'd love for you to preview, but also um, gives us insight. It really led to the sort of degradation of the reputation of her museum before it even opened, um, which you sort of recount so beautifully in the last chapter. So could you tell us about that? Oh, sure. Oh, gosh. It is it is a melodrama. So her husband, so Clemence was married early uh, in the 1840s, and she had a separation from her first husband, so a legal separation, which explains how she was able to amass a collection. So even if, because they were séparation des biens, it was before, divorce was not authorized until the 1880s. So again, the status of women, if you can't be divorced and you're in an unhappy marriage, what do you do? Um, but so because she had this legal status, she was able to control her own money. And she was very clever also at investing in the, uh, the stock market, in railroads. When she was remarried, so her second husband is Adolphe Dennery, who is an extremely well-known playwright. The, he wrote melodramas. He's in the United States. He's probably best known as having written the play that D.W. Griffith's Orphans of the Storm was based on. Um, but the reason why I'm backtracking to that earlier history is that she would not, if she had not had this legal status as this kind of limbo, she would not have been able to live this free life that she did until her first husband died. So her first husband died in, um, 1881 and she re 1880 and she remarried, uh, Adolphe Denry in 1881. They had been living together for 40 years as sort of consorts each having their own homes, but but essentially she was his de facto wife, although she was still married to the other fellow. All of that to say, so I'm, I'm getting to the juicy story. <laughs> when they remarried, she, she they, they protected their, their goods. They did not want their family who, who had all been digging at the money. I mean, they were millionaires by the 1880s. Everybody knew that they had tons of money. And we know what happens to elderly people who have lots of money and, 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 and people kind of the vultures are circling. So they were very careful to say, we don't want anybody in our family to come near us, stay away. They can't have any of our money. We're leaving it to artists societies and we're leaving the house and the collection to the state. And it will serve as a free public museum for presumably for the readers of her husband's melodramas. Right, so people who don't have access to art will be able to come here. They gave a half a million dollar, uh, half a million dollars, half a million francs in to have an investment, so the upkeep would be, be so that it could be free forever, so that the public could come in. Of course, it's going to be attacked in court because it was unnatural not to leave your inheritance to your family. So um, that, the same thing happened for the Goncourts. The Goncourt brothers' family also attacked their decision to create the Académie Goncourt with their, the proceeds of their, their collections. It was complicated. This whole story was complicated by the fact that um, Adolphe, so this, the second husband, the playwright, had had an affair with a young woman back in the 1840s. Apparently, he and his brother had both had an affair with the same woman. There was a child that w who was born... And somehow the family ended up supporting this child after her mother died. So it's very unclear where paternity is. There were no DNA tests. They, they, they took care of her for one reason or another. She shows up as Adolphe is, um, has, has suffered several strokes and is diminished 
um, he has serious cognitive issues at the end of his life. And so they somehow, she managed, the, the, the possible daughter manages to come in and convince him to sign a, a will authorizing her to be his heir. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, it, it's not as clear as it, as it should be. But anyway, she, as she says, well, I'm his heir, there's this, this, this will and a massive lawsuit goes on. If you can, so the, the state first finds that she is, she can be considered the legitimate heir, mostly because there's nobody else there. They don't have any children. It's a kind of a convenience. It's really interesting in the archival record because all of the ministry is following this, the future curator is following this, and they're all writing to each other in befuddlement. And they're like, well, she's totally, you know, she has no claim. Da, 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 da. Anyway, it's really quite interesting to read that. As you can imagine, this beautiful townhouse right next to the Bois de Boulogne, coupled with a half a million francs, why would you want the state to get that? And so there's a, a really interesting publicity battle where the lawyers go on the attack and they publish articles saying, oh, well, this is just the vanity project of a rich old lady. There's nothing here. It's junk. The state should just sell this stuff and we'll take that house. Thank you. Uh, and so it, the, 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 the cast of characters, because it really is a melodrama, mm-hmm. right? Clémence Denry ends up being the bad guy. She's the evil villain stepmother figure who's preventing this young lady from claiming her true heritage. And she is absolutely smeared in the press. Smeared because she writes, because she is skilled at needlepoint, because she spends time taking care of her collection instead of taking care of her husband. I mean, it, 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 it's... Um, it's every stereotype of the blue stocking you can imagine. Uh, at any rate, the, the, uh, the ledger daughter becomes the heir, and then she refuses to give up the house and the money. So there's another lawsuit that shows that she has to pay damages. But all of this delays the opening of the museum by 10 years. It drags the collection into the, the mud. It drags the, the benefactor into the mud in the worst um, misogynistic tropes. And so when it opens, she disappears. She's a liability. They don't want, the state doesn't want to, they, they can say, well, it was her husband's work. He's an upstanding playwright. He was a wealthy man. It was his work. And not this hysterical needle, needle pointer. <laughs> <laughs> the knitters, right? <laughs> It, it, and again, back to, right back to your points about the, the the gendering of different art forms, and the gendering of connoisseurship, and who then takes credit for her decisions. You you trace all this in the last chapter in such a such a compelling way, you know, and why she's we she's lost to this day and lost in the tours that you can take at the museum, and why the museum isn't featured maybe um, in guidebooks of Paris uh, as much as other sort of house museums and personal collections. Right. And there hasn't been a catalog published since 1908 when the museum opened. So, I mean, I think they're working on that, though. Mm. Hopefully. Well, you provide so many, uh, you know, I want to assign this book to graduate students because you you sort of provide so many future direct future directions for other scholars um, to pursue work. You know, you list a name of other women artists and collectors and shopkeepers that people, you know, need more study that um, need more time 
dedicated to them. But, you know, as we wrap up and, and I thank you for your time, you know, what are you working on now? There's so many possible directions, you know, your reader can see in this book uh, about future projects to pursue, but what are you, are you continuing on this, the same project? Are you moving on to something else? Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you. That, that that makes me feel so wonderful to know that the notes are helpful. And I, I really, I, I, I was torn, you know, and you write and you, you wonder how much you should put in the footnotes. And I thought, you know, these aren't archives that are very accessible. And so if I put at least the traces in the footnotes, somebody else can build on it. And my idea is that this is really, this is barely scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. But my hope is that by identifying names, exactly what you say is that people will be able to go back. Students can go back and find a great dissertation topic right. and kind right. of bringing out these these names. So my current projects, yes, I'm continuing to work on some of the figures. I actually leave on Monday for um, Lian Ashat. They're, they're doing this really fantastic database. So again, if, if listeners uh, do have students or are interested in some figures, that database should go live in 2022, and it's dedicated to uh, dealers and collectors of uh, Asian art in in France from the end of the 18th century up until about World War II. Uh, and it's sort of bio-bibliographical, so it'll, it'll be this fantastic – they've been working on it for a really long time, and it'll, it's going to be a really good resource. Um, there's a lot of work at many museums right now as well, trying to resurrect the story of of women collectors and women art dealers. The Frick is doing, I think, starting next week, a, a whole month of of, uh, of lectures, uh, Zoom lectures on, on on women in the arts. So yes, so I continue working on this, and hopefully we can bring out more voices and show how women have always participated. They just don't always get the claim or don't take the claim because they weren't supposed to. Right. You say some of them don't even, you know, dedicate collections in the name of their husbands, even a fascinating sort of um, note that your book um, ends on. Uh, Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, Elizabeth. Uh, This is such an important feminist contribution to the scholarship of 19th century art, <laughs> the collecting practices, uh, the curation, the historiography, uh, to Japonisme. And I, I really appreciated um, your book, Reframing Japonisme, and, and our discussion today. So thank you so much. Oh, and thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you. And as you can tell, I'm passionate about it. And it's just fantastic to participate in this program. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.